The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian's World Cup podcast, coming to you from the shores of one of the host nations, Australia. And we've had an action-packed weekend since the opening ceremony on Friday night. Plenty of games to choose from. The results probably have gone largely the way they were expected to go. But there have been talking points, action, controversy and all kinds of things in between times. Uh, As I look around the studio here, Jeff Lemon uh, joining you to host the cast and to my left, Guardian writer Russell Jackson and across the table, journalist and broadcaster Alison Mitchell. Good morning. Or, good morning. Uh, Hello, good morning. Well, it might not be a morning when you're listening to this, but uh, let's just say it is the morning now. Well, you know, a, a strange weekend and it started with Australia and England and uh, plenty of weirdness going on in that game, Russ. Lots of weirdness, yeah. Pro- probably the single worst hat trick you'd ever see, um, but it's in the book, as they say. So, yeah, uh, I think pr- probably the lacklustre England effort that we sort of expected but didn't quite expect it would be as bad as it was um but yeah there was plenty of positives for Australia obviously and I think it's probably worth considering you know just how strange the England lineup was for that match the way you know they essentially abandoned all of the preparation that's gone into this World Cup dropped Ravi Bapara on the eve of the tournament um replace him with Gary Balance and then shunt um, James Taylor down the order. So it was all very strange. I'm not sure what your take on that was, Alison. Yeah, my my take on the whole match was that England were never favourites, were they, let's be honest, but really didn't expect them to go down in the manner that they did and to allow Australia to rack up their, their highest ever total against England was it was a pretty ignominious way to, to start uh, the World Cup campaign. Changing that top order round, it does, you know, the whole build up to this World Cup was about making sure England had the right preparation, one day preparation. They'd shifted a whole Ashes series around, they'd shifted the schedule, you know, nobody shifts that um, in order to, to make this a smooth build up. And then, you know, the World Cup, they've, they've gone in with a whole new top three. So it did smack a little bit of muddled thinking in a way, should they have dropped Ravi Bapar a little bit earlier? Okay, Balance was, was injured, wasn't he? He was nursing a crooked finger through that tri-series, so they perhaps didn't have the opportunity. Um, not ideal, uh, but I think that's now they've set out their stall and that will be the top three, certainly for the next match. It seemed a strange one, didn't it? Because England really don't play a lot of one-day cricket. And as you said, they shifted their schedule around so that they could play a lot of one-day matches in the lead-up to this and you know, then just abandoned most of that preparation in stepping into it. And it's almost as though the things that they need to work on that are, it's it's so clear that their death bowling is shocking, that their fielding has been, you know, inert at times, that those aren't things that we're seeing improvements. You know, going into that match, we knew it will be a big risk in the last 10 overs, mm. you know, that Australia and England bowling first, sending Australia in and then just, you know, 109 or whatever it was off those last nine overs of the Australian innings, there was just kind of this crushing inevitability about the way, you know, that just fell apart at the end there. Have you read Stuart Broad's response? Uh, he's, he's got a column in um, where, where he sort of dis- explained a bit about the, the death bowling and saying that actually, you know, their, their tactic at the MCG is very much to drop it short because the straight boundaries are that much shorter than the square boundaries. 
to actually drop it short and challenge a batsman to try and you know hit 80 meters or so and but actually when you've got someone like Aaron Finch there he will hit 80 meters right so actually maybe you still need to try and pitch it up yeah and when it's a foot outside off stump and Brad Haddon is batting and there's no third man it's maybe mm. not such a great tactic either yeah, potentially so. And I think, Russ, you and I discussed that uh, we, we were debating whether Mitchell Marsh or Stephen Finn had taken the worst fiver in, in one-day history. So, I mean, you know, Steve Finn, he got a hat-trick with the last three balls of the match when he was just trying to be slogged. And when you're bowling yeah. the last ball of a game to Mitchell Johnson, who's facing his first delivery, um, you will never have a better chance for a hat-trick than exactly that. Exactly right. Which he dearly polished off, and it was the least amount of celebration I've ever seen for a hat-trick. They all went, eh. <laughs> As we all did in the commentary yeah, box. Yeah, exactly. Whereas on the flip side... Um, Marsh was out of his skin about his wickets, all of which came from fairly ordinary balls. It was trash. Because he's not used to taking wickets, essentially. In the 14 ODIs he played prior to that game, he'd taken six wickets in those 14 games. I think in 700 deliveries of international cricket or more, he's taken eight wickets. So he's not a bowler that you want to concede a very fast five for two, and that's what England did in you know, inglorious mm. style there. Yeah, and, and and such a strange bag. You know, he, he had an absolute screamer of a catch from Steve Smith for one of them. He had a, a, an outside edge from the toe of the, the bat toe, on a pull yep. shot from Owen Morgan. Morgan, yeah, and that's a whole big issue that England have to deal with when their captain is just racking up the ducks. What do you, what do you think about that, Alison? Because I feel like people have been getting on Morgan's back and saying, oh, you're out of form, you haven't been making runs. If you're getting out in these bizarre ways, it did not, and he said in his press conference, if, if I'd nicked for to the keeper or slip and, and made ducks, I'd be worried. But if I'm getting out, like, you know, you can't budget for getting out outside edge toe end on a pull shot mm. to the worst bowl you've ever faced. You're, you're still getting out, though. I and mean, is, it, is it then to do with the shot selection? I just don't really buy that argument when Batsman mm. and George Bailey, we heard him say as well, you know, if I was nicking off, you know, I'd be worried. But but I, it's not as if I'm not hitting the ball well. Well, no, you're just getting out early. You know, mm. it's still it's it's just as yeah. big a problem in my book. Yeah, and it's almost like we can't tell whether Morgan is out of form or not because he doesn't hang around long enough. Mm. Um, and you know, there's maybe some credence to what he's saying that that you know he has control over playing those shots. And a big frustration of England's innings was that probably the first eight wickets were entirely controllable. The last two were, were good balls, a Yorker from um, Stark and and um, a bouncer from Johnson. But that aside, the England batsmen really got themselves out and, mm. and dug themselves into that hole that Taylor kind of had to fix from six um, when, you know... Too late you, by then, isn't it? Too late. And you sort of wonder how things would have been, whether it would have been different if Taylor in the form that he's in did come in at three, which is, you know, where he's accustomed to batting, where he had rights to feel like he should be batting. Um, mm. And then at the last minute, he kind of had the rug pulled from under him. But as a, as a county player, he plays more sort of five or six, doesn't he, down the order? That's... Um, I don't think he, he he hasn't played six for not. So in Graham Swan, he plays them at Nottinghamshire, saying like, he's, he's now been you know, dropped down to a position that he's not accustomed to playing in. Mm. Um, I mean... How unfortunate, though, to be stranded on 98 as he was. And, and not mm. just, though, from, from his personal point of view, that farcical end to the match with the umpires. And that will affect England's net run rate. Um, yep. Woe betide. I mean, who knows if they were to lose another game or two in the group stages. Could it be tight for that fourth mm. spot? Mm. Could net run rate come into it at the end to decide those group positions? That's when that decision 
of the umpires will be reverted to. Yeah, and there's also the emotional part of missing out on a century at the MCG. You know, yeah. you're not going to get the chance to do that in a World Cup. In a World Cup. In a World often. Cup. In your first World Cup match, too. Yeah. Um, and it was just the whole that whole episode was disconcerting from the perspective that uh, it was just chaos. You know, you expect at the at the very minimum that maybe you know. Uh, an umpire will make a wrong call based on what they see and they mm-hmm. miss an edge or see an edge that isn't there. You can accept that, but to just not know the rules, which yep. was what it came down to, they checked, um, you know, they checked this. Yeah, and every uh, every TV caller was saying, that's oh, pretty much, that's got to be a dead ball, ball doesn't it? And I, I was at the ground at the time, you know, and everybody in the press box was saying, dead ball, you know. Dead ball. You start to doubt yourself, don't you? Because yeah. you think, hang on, the umpires must know, and they're radioing up to the third umpire, right. and the match referee sitting up there, but... So I think <laughs> I think there must have been confusion with... There is a rule where if they're checking a, a, a decision review um, replay and they realise that you're out in a way that wasn't appealed for, they can give you out That's that right. way instead. Mm-hmm. But that was a different batsman. Um, so it wasn't a different mode of dismissal from from the one review. It's an entirely different review. And I'm also confident that James Anderson pulled up in that run. I think if you watch that replay, he heard yes. the crowd go up for the LBW shout and he said, oh, it's over. Mm. And he didn't actually try to hammer in for that. So the, the umpire's decision influenced his dismissal and he was then um, given out anyway. And that's exactly why the, the law is there that says as soon as the, 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 the original, that decision is made... The ball becomes dead. Mm. And if for once, the DRS regulations are utterly clear on what happens yes. once a... crystal clear. Yeah, once a review has been made, even if, if the out is reversed and it's not out, the original decision, the ball becomes dead mm. after that original decision. And sort of aside from the rules aspect of it, just for Alim Dar to give the decision he did as the central umpire, see the ball then hit the stumps and to have said to himself... Uh, well, that's a du- it's essentially a double play. Mm. You know, you're yep. so abandoning everything you've previously known and saying, okay, I gave a decision then, yep. and after I gave that decision, yep. a runouts occurred, and I'm allowing a double play to occur. It's just, it was just it was bizarre. It and goes Taylor, against every instinct. Mm. Doesn't yeah, it, it does. It why, does. Why are we getting the DRS so wrong? Because it, we, there was another decision in the India Pakistan game, Umar Akmal. Um, given not out, playing and missing at one outside off stump. Yes. They went to the third umpire. There was there was nothing on the snicker. There was maybe the faintest hint that the ball might have moved, but it was wobbling off the seam anyway. Mm. And the decision, decision was overturned and he was given out. Yes. And India was celebrating getting a DRS decision in their favour, which has never happened <laughs> and before. And so the whole were, of Pakistan yeah. was cursing Steve Davis, yeah. I think. But there, and there was, you know, from my perspective, there is no way looking at that you could say, I can overturn a not out decision on that. Yeah. And yet that's exactly what happened. You should be looking for, you need substantial evidence to overturn the umpire's decision. When it's an LBW and it's a close call, like because we know it's got to be 50% of the ball knocking the stumps if it's shaving it and you know the original decision um I'm going to get this right now but you know the the original's not out the original's not out yeah you need more than 50% of the ball to make hitting, hitting it more out. than so, 50% of the yeah, stumps so, so therefore what watching watching this with nothing really on snicko but maybe some visual deviation but so much doubt yes there's not enough there to overturn the decision that it should have then stayed with the the umpire's call and with the batsman on that occasion what, what do we do do we do we have to lock all the umpires in a room and scold them and uh, i mean this seems to happen quite a lot we've seen this happen a bunch of times with with overturns that shouldn't be overturned and decisions being upheld that shouldn't be upheld and that's the frustration, I think, for fans is that the technology is available for that decision to be made correctly and anyone could see that that 
th- there was too much doubt there that you know there was nothing conclusively conclusively proving that it was out and it was given and that's the frustration is that you know the the evidence is there to make the decision and it's still comes down to the same human error that the technology is trying to eliminate. Yeah. Now, I would have thought with this opening World Cup match with Australia and England, England wouldn't be too worried about losing it because they probably budgeted for losing it. Um, and maybe they found something in, in Taylor. Maybe he needs to stay at six if he, he's done well there and um, he'll have some confidence up and they can go on to the rest of their campaign. Do you think that's a, a fair way to look at it? In terms of budgeting for a defeat, they, they would never admit that, of, no, course, of course. But um, I don't think they they would have ever budgeted for such a heavy defeat. And that's where, you know, before the match, I was sitting in the commentary box with Graham Swan and we were saying, hey, just think, what if if England win this match? You know, what a boost that would be for their campaign. You know, we're not really expecting it. You know, so what a boost it would be if England win. And the fact that they lost by such a big margin just really deflates his campaign from the start and so many questions over the the death bowling, questions mm. over Morgan's form, the dropped catches. It's just so much that was that was poor about that match from England's point of view. So not so much the, the fact that two points have been lost, but more so the fact that they just really didn't play to the level that they can. Right, and there'll, there'll be a, a certain loss of enthusiasm perhaps around that. And there seemed a, a lack of enthusiasm in general, particularly when they fielded. Um, to win the toss and bowl and then uh, there, there was just no energy in the field. There were fours that went that shouldn't have gone. Gary Balance was slow to get out to a catch and, and didn't make you know the distance. Um, there were just a lot of little things that where Australia have in the last probably six months picked up a lot in their fielding and brought Mike Young back in and there's been those incremental improvements and you see that in you know, the catch that Smith takes. Whereas with England, even the run out, Morgan's run out, that felt like a novelty compared to everything else happening. It was almost like <laughs> when, when he hit with that throw, I went, wow, England did something right <laughs> in the field. I mean, it was only a, a few days before that match that England's fielding coach, um, Chris Taylor, was just saying how he thinks the, the team who fields the best could be the team that lifts the World Cup. And then we have, you know, opening over Chris Wokes at square leg through the hands and mm. just felt as if England were a little bit cold. And for all that the, the build-up and England stressing that the MCG won't be a, a, a daunting atmosphere, you know, they're ready for 90,000, they've played in front of big crowds before... In retrospect now, even Stuart Broad has admitted that actually, you know, it's a it's a big cauldron and you go out there and he was getting an awful lot of stick from the crowd. Mm. So actually England are sort of now actually admitting a little bit that, oh yeah, it, well, it was actually quite an intimidating atmosphere and it felt a bit like they were just a little rabbits in headlights, or at least, you know, works at Square Legs seemed to be like that. It just wasn't quite switched on mm. from the very off. And even at that 70 for three point where it could have gone either way and Australia were in trouble that England couldn't press home that advantage mm. and that it it slowly slipped away it wasn't Bailey didn't come in and smash it um you know that they consolidated they did what they had to do they were calm and then they launched at the end and it was that composure that England lacked throughout the whole match. It was an incredibly measured 100 from Finch, wasn't it? Until then he was able to really yeah. cut loose and then those mm. shots were just, it was fizzing off the bat and mm. that reverse reverse sweep that just shot for four, low and flat, incredible. It mm. seems Australia's really nailed down, you know, the last couple of, of slightly unconfirmed things. You know, Finch was, he's not 
not doesn't get the most attention in the team, but he's really stamped his um, his place now. Uh, Glenn Maxwell was not in great form, sort of over the the Big Bash summer, but he's suddenly come into form and he's he's iced that innings perfectly with that sixty six from forty balls. Um, Haddon's made runs, you know. Uh, Marsh has taken wickets at, mm. as unflatteringly as we may have described mm. them, possibly a little harsh. Sorry, Mitchell, but you know he did he did get some wickets. At least he feels like he can do that now. Yeah. Um, and maybe the only the sort of nagging hangnail that still on the Australian team is the fact that, as you said, three for seventy, they were in trouble. George Bailey comes in, the captain, um, helps at one hundred and fifty eight. By the time he got out for only you know one more wicket down in the interim, really stabilised the innings and allowed them to ram it home. And he's made fifty five, and he's a very good chance to get dropped for the next match. Yes. So you can bring in Michael Clark, who has played. So out of Australia's last 30 one-day matches over the last year and a half, Clark has played six, and in two of those he's gone off halfway through injured. So he's finished four games out of 30. Bailey's captained 24 games plus the two half games that Clark hasn't been able to finish, and yet Bailey's going to get the arse so that Clark can come back in as a one-day player when he doesn't play one-day cricket anymore. How does that work, Russell? <laughs> um, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's an easy one to answer. Um I actually think that the luxury Australia have is that I think they can afford to carry Clark. Um, could Clark have played that consolidating innings that Bailey played? Yes, I think he could. Um, they're carrying Watson at the moment. You know, there are a lot of people saying, oh, Marsh has got five wickets, we can get rid of Watson, which I really don't think is the case. But Australia made 342 without Warner or Smith firing. And I think... It, in a side playing that well, batting at five, I think you can carry Clark. That would be my argument. You know, that that's tough for George Bailey, but um, there's no better team man in the Australian side, I don't think. So he's not, you know, he's certainly not publicly expressing any grievances. You know, he just realises that that's his lot. I've, I've been hearing an awful lot, I mean, not only from George Bailey, but Mitchell Marsh as well yesterday, very consciously talking about almost deliberately stressing the fact that we are a group of 15 players it doesn't matter who the 11 are on the park it feels as if that's really a message that they're trying to to mm. hammer out mm. whether it's something that's come from Lehman that he's trying to actually build a, a squad culture for mm. this world cup but it's been you know first of all stressed by Bailey and that oh no I'm quite happy to drop drop out of the side I'm, well quite happy but you know I probably will he's 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 resigned for it and sort of ready for it and then Mitch Marsh stressing that as well um it's 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 difficult for Australia. I think it's you know Clark's going to come back in to lead a side that doesn't really feel like his side anymore. The team are used to Bailey, used to the field settings, used to the uh, the, the culture that he's created. Mm. It's a bit. It's quite an unknown quantity as to mm. how the team will gel back around Clark, unless this you know real squad mentality is as is as good as uh, they're making it out to be. Does it seem weird from an English perspective? I mean, England frothed around so hard over getting rid of Alistair Cook. You know, they agonised mm. over it for months and months. As sort of like you know one of the. Uh, the the kind of uh, the guy getting his arm stuck under a rock and having to cut it off with a pocket knife, you know, this, sat there for hours wondering if they could actually do it, and finally, eventually, did, and, and mm. now they're free. Um, but but 
that was a permanent change of captaincy. Yeah. This thing of kind of having two captains, plus you've got Smith who is captaining the test, who's sort of in the side, plus you've got Finch who's the T20 captain. You know, you've got four captains in the top six, uh, effectively, and Watson's it is a bit messy. the side before. Yeah, it, it is a little bit messy. And I think um, England fans who have, you know, flown out to Australia and haven't quite been aware of the... If like the the depth of the debate and the the niggle underlying as it may be between Clark and Cricket Australia and and that was stoked up by Shane Warne on the eve of the match saying the selectors he believed are out to break Clark and set him up to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think quite all of that debate really quite made it over to England and people coming over here now for the World Cup reading the newspapers going ah oh, the Aussies are actually in a you know they've they've got some internal problems going on. They're they're in a you know bit of a bit of a mess on that front. It's not all you know the sweetness and light in the Australian camp. And I think they're feeling that's quite it's quite refreshing for a change that there is so much uh, Australian media focus on the Australian team rather than just getting stuck into England. And so unlike Shane Warne to be driving a wedge like that. No, <laughs> it's just never been his style at all. And I think if you're being an optimist with Australia with that issue, you would say. Yes, there's essentially four captains in that lineup. Five, if you consider the fact that Watson's, you know, also captained Australia. It sort of says to me, especially at one day level, it's almost interchangeable. I mean, Bailey captained very well, and a lot, and a few of those England dismissals the other night were due to canny field placements. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's a really tough one for him, but I think it's it shows, you know. It's a luxury for Australia, even though, as you said, there's that undercurrent behind the scenes of, you know, Clark publicly stating that, um, you know, after the first test this summer, he was ready to retire. And now he's saying, I don't feel like that anymore. <laughs> talking about the 2019 World Cup. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. He'll still be playing in 2035. One World <laughs> Cup at a time, Michael. <laughs> Now, we should have a look around the grounds at some of the other action that's happened over the weekend. Uh, New Zealand and Sri Lanka actually kicked off the World Cup, although I noticed the Australian broadcasters were claiming that uh, that they kicked it off several hours later. In, in any case, the Kiwis had a comprehensive win over Sri Lanka, which they've made a habit of doing through about 400 warm-up games so far this summer, made 331. And it's quite uh, striking to read through the New Zealand scorecard 49, 65, 57, 14, 29, 75, 29. Those are their batsmen's scores. So mm. everyone's made double figures. Everyone's made a good chunk of runs. And between them, they've put on 331. Sri Lanka could only make 233 in reply. Bodes well for New Zealand in this weird position of starting a tournament really as favourites. Yeah, it says quite unaccustomed. <laughs> I mean, everyone says they're the dark horses. I think we should have a fine box shouldn't we, whenever we use that phrase. But... Only because they have black uniforms. but <laughs> That's right. But, um, you know, they've got depth, I think, um, both in the, the the bowling as well. You know, Trent Bolt sort of firing in those swinging, searing Yorkers that he can. Um, that They've shown, just carried on the form that they've shown so far, haven't they? McCullum and Corey Anderson and Kane Williamson. Um, they're, a, they're a fine side at the moment. They all seem to know their roles very well. And, yeah, I think they've stamped their mark on the tournament in a, in a more emphatic way than perhaps many might have expected, albeit, yeah, of course, they have beaten Sri Lanka, you know, throughout that series. But they've really put their mark on the tournament. And what's quite remarkable about New Zealand at the moment is that they can afford to leave quality players out. I mean, at the moment, Mitch McLennigan can't get a game. The guy's got 66 wickets in 34 ODIs at a strike rate of 25 
which is just insane, and they can't fit him into their 11 because, you know, they've got Milne bowling at express base. So it's like it, there's no complacency in the New Zealand lineup, and they all know what their job is, and for the most part they all do it. They have had a good run into this tournament playing at home, thrashing Sri Lanka, Pakistan. Um, they'll play all of their games in New Zealand for the next month, virtually, um, until they potentially make the final. So I would think, um, yeah, that they, they just they just look very hard to beat. Yeah, particularly with that, that draw, as you said. I mean, as long as they keep winning, they'll, they play a home semi-final. Um, yes. And, you know, particularly if, if Australia somehow get knocked out in the quarters or the semis, if New Zealand could roll up to the MCG facing any other side, they'd be overwhelming favourites to take it home. I think so. Mm, I, I agree. I think the um, will the, the Australian crowd back New Zealand? That's the that's the key question, isn't it? <laughs> However yeah. many thousand, whether they get eighty, ninety thousand at the MCG, if Australia aren't there, mm. will they support New Zealand or will they support whoever is against them? What about the Sri Lankans? Can they come good? I mean, they've you know they've got a couple of blue chip players there in Sangakkara and Jaya Warden. They've got Dilshan at the top of the order who can give it a whack, but he's he's becoming more and more of a sort of latter career Saywag kind of you know, comes off less and less frequently. They've got Angelo Matthews, but really that's about it as far as their batting goes. And their bowling's a bit thin where they've got, you know, Herath is a wonderful spin bowler. Um, Malinga's very good on his day, but he's a little bit out of touch. He's, you know, been off with injury. And and he's just looking very creaky. And yeah. that's the tale of the Sri Lankan team at the moment, I think, is that there was a natural tendency to say, well, these this golden generation of guys, we've got to nurse them through this World Cup and that's when the regeneration starts. But they do look creaky. They look old. Um, they were beaten. You can't read too much into warm-up games, obviously, but... They were beaten by Zimbabwe, um, and they just look fairly vulnerable. Mm. Speaking of Zimbabwe, I think we saw what's probably going to be the tale for a lot of the sides outside the top eight this World Cup, where they, you know, they were they were into a game. They had South Africa four for eighty odd. Um, they looked like maybe they'd they they could get their way into a game, and then there's a century from number five, century mm. from number six. South Africa make three hundred plus. And, you know, Zimbabwe put together a fairly good total in reply, but, but we're never actually threatening for the win. Are we going to see a lot of this kind of disappointment and close run, or oh, maybe they could have got in there and then they just didn't? Well, it's similar to the, the kind of year that Bangladesh have had, and they haven't beaten a, a, a top-flight nation in the last year in ODIs, but they've, they've, they've got into potentially winning positions, and these teams are able to get teams, you know, 70-odd for four, 80-odd for four. But it's then the, the the following through with that and it's being able to sustain pressure with your bowling attack over a 50-over period and taking those more regular wickets. And and, and that's where the, the gap is, I think, between the, the top nations and, and the associates. But, you know, I, I, Ireland are always a, a, a strong team and, you know, they've got a, a match against the West Indies, which is very winnable for them, bearing in mind the West Indies uh, form and all the troubles they've had coming into this tournament and no Pollard and you know, Bravo and all the internal wranglings and the fact that they just didn't look like they wanted to be there when they played England for one in that warm-up match that was extraordinarily lax from their point of view. Mm. Richie Richardson saying, we don't want to peak too early, which is, goes down as the Definitely biggest haven't. understatement of the tournament. <laughs> no danger of that Absolutely whatsoever. Absolutely safe, Richie. He's between the flags on that one, <laughs> right between the flags. But and I will add, when he said that, he was wearing sunglasses inside. So. Uh, okay, well, yeah, keeping it up maybe a big night out 
um, you know, the Who previous knows? evening. Who knows? But we saw you know, a couple of great moments from from the Zimbabweans. That catch to dismiss De Villiers on on the boundary line was a a special. And then my favourite part was Solomon Mire, the, who was coming in at you know what was he number eight or so, yeah. absolutely flogging Dale, saying beautiful six of his pads. And then he yeah. hit Morgan for one of the biggest sixes I've ever seen. It literally yes. was out of the stadium. Yes. Ball left the stadium, gone. You know, with this lovely clout over long on. So you know, if if you if your tail's coming in and batting like that, maybe they are a, a hope to steal one somewhere. And it was a nice act of revenge for Solomon Mirai after being taken apart by uh, by Miller in the South African innings, which was an interesting one. De Villiers and Amla both failed. South Africa eighty for four and looking vulnerable. Mm. Um, and then. Dumini and Miller and Dumini being such a linchpin for them, I think. Mm. Both of them making undefeated hundreds in a 250-run stand highlights how important Dumini is to the side. He then comes out, bowls his eight overs at, you know, five and over or whatever it is, and they certainly look a lot better side with him in it. Yeah, you, Russell, you were... I know everyone's been on South Africa as sort of must be one of the favourites. You've been off them. Yeah, I think so. I I find it hard to see them winning with Berhardin playing a role, which he is. He bowled five overs yesterday, um, went for Aiden over, and I think that's that's a weakness for them. And Mm. I I just, yeah, I just get bad feelings that, you know, they feel very semi-final loss to me again, South Africa, you know, not to resort to cliche, but that's, that's what they're looking like. See, I tipped uh, an Australia-South Africa final before the start with South Africa to win. And they have been winning series, you know, in different conditions around the world, except in Australia where they were beaten uh, in November. So perhaps that is going to be a bit of an Achilles heel. Is Stain as threatening as he as he once was. Um, do they have the depth? I mean, Chankton Neil Manthorpe, who follows the South Africa team, you know, infinitely more close because he's with them all the time. He's he's genuinely not convinced. He mm. he believes that they're they're lacking a, a depth. And although you know David Miller, we saw what he could do today. You found some, you've you've got some good yeah. good stats on Miller. I mean, Miller, South Africa play. Obviously, they've played Zimbabwe. They'll play West Indies in the group stages. He's played a combined total of 19 matches against those two nations for averages of 78 and 96, which really boost his overall average of 38. And he's another guy who he looks a million bucks against those lower-ranked nations, and he just absolutely tore Zimbabwe apart, um, certainly. But you wonder, um, and this is an odd thing to say about a side who have the top two ranked ODI batsmen in the world in Amler and de Villiers, but... There were just these these worrying kind of weak points. And as you said, Stain perhaps not being the force that he once was. Morkel, um, on the last ODI tour of Australia, looked like a guy you could score runs off at will. So, Plus, plus he gives you about five or six no balls per innings, which he then has to deliver as free hits. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think the, they do have those couple of amazing batsmen and then perhaps not so much around them. But the real, the weak point for me is the bowling. You know, Stain is a brilliant test bowler, but in one day, is, because he's quick, he's brisk, he he can get tapped. You can, as a fast bowler, even if you're bowling well, you can still go for 60 or 70 runs. If a bunch of outside edges go off, you know, they're, they're all four runs. Um, you know, someone nicks one past the stumps, whatever. And Do you rate you, Imran Tahir? I love Imran Tahir. I think, I think he's a magnificent bowler, but I think their pace attack, they've got Stain, who's an excellent bowler but can still be expensive. Um, and then they've got sort of Morkel and Flander and guys like that who are 
good, decent test bowlers, but can be cannon fodder in one days. But yeah, Imran Tahir, for me, he's going to be one of the stories of the Cup. I'm really looking forward to that. And he was key last night, um, three for 30-odd. He took the, the two wickets when Zimbabwe actually started really well when uh, Chibaba and Hamilton Masakadza were flying along. He got both of them out for um, substantial half-centuries and it really you know made sure that that didn't end up being a close match when it looked like it could have been. So uh, excited to see how the Tahir story ends up. Mm. And so and, spin spin bowling is, is is one department that Australia don't really have a, a match winning spinner. How much of a part spin bowling will will play remains to be seen as we go on, really. But if you were pitching, you know, Australia South Africa together on that front, that's certainly one area where you go, yeah, that's one nil South Africa. Australia has a max winning spinner. Well, yes. <laughs> there was a quite amusing moment during the Pakistan India game where, based on Yazir Shah's none for sixty from nine overs, Shane Warne declared that spin would play a huge role in this World Cup. Um, I I doubt that that judgment a little bit. I think that spinners generally speaking, will play a containment role. And I think that's the way Australia's gone with their selection and that's why they picked Doherty ahead of yeah, Lyon. Of Lyon is that they're saying, well, it said two things. We're probably not going to pick a spinner. And it says when we do, containment is what we're after. And, yeah, as you said, Tahir, on, on that note, that was a great performance from Tahir, I think. Mm. And speaking of Yassir Shah, we should... Probably get to our next segment and bring our next guest into the studio. That's gone! Jeff Lemon here with you on the Guardians World Cup podcast along with Russell Jackson. And our next guest in the studio is Wisden India editor Dilip Premachandran. And Dilip, we saw a huge game yesterday, Pakistan v India, and a massive level of excitement between two teams who may not even end up being semi-finalists, but there was there was chaos and carnage in Adelaide last night. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny how when these two teams play, the the context in terms of the tournament seldom seems to matter. In '92, India didn't get anywhere close to the knockouts. Pakistan went on to win it, but it's the fact that India beat Pakistan that's still you know part of that six-nil sequence that the fans keep talking about. And it was the same in 99 when India won, but it was Pakistan that went on to reach the final. So probably in the, as far as the big picture is concerned, this really might not have any bearing at all. But uh, as far as uh, individual matches go, it was by far the most high profile that we're likely to see before the knockout stages. Incredible excitement, Russell. It, you know, even just watching on television, the, the amount of energy and noise and intensity at the Adelaide Oval with that, that ripper sunset you know, behind yeah. the ground and, and the ground absolutely packed full of insanely screaming fans. It just felt like the most gloriously irrelevant game ever that, you know, the atmosphere. Uh, I heard reports that the, the Adelaide Oval wasn't actually full, that of the 52,000 capacity or whatever it is, they only got 41,000 in there in the end, potentially because flights and accommodation became so expensive that people with tickets didn't actually make it to the ground. But Gee, the people who were there made up for it with the, the the sound that they made, and yeah, the atmosphere was just was brilliant. Even watching it on TV, that's not often the case. That you know, just from watching it on the TV, you get a sense of of how great it must have been to be there. And and an interesting mix sort of on the TV as well of of getting um, all of these different broadcasters from different stations to be calling the game, where 
you sort of had, you know, Harsha Bogle on there with Ramis Raja and Shane Warne and so on. These, these combinations that, that we haven't heard before that really added something to the to telecast, I think. For sure. But, you know, probably the, the story of the night would be Virat Kohli to leap. Um, he's made his 22nd one day 100. He's 26 years of age. And the only men ahead of him on, on the list of one day 100 makers are Jaya Surya, Ponting, and Tendulkar. He's, that's it. It, that, it, it's all it's all daylight ahead of him. That that's a fairly elite list too. Now I think that the incredible thing about Kohli is that people were talking about his his lack of form in the in the tri series that preceded this, but you always thought, okay, put him in a World Cup situation, especially a game against a team like Pakistan, and and you just sense that he'd be up for it, that he'd come up with a performance. Time and again, he's been the sort of player who. Uh, reserves is best for those kind of situations, a big run chase, uh, a fourth innings chase, those kind of situations where lesser players perhaps quail a bit and say, oh, I can't handle this. Uh, he seems to be in his element in those situations. He has such belief, doesn't he? I, I, it really stood out to me that during the post-match interview, there was a somewhat unnecessary comment perhaps but to say uh, something like, oh, your fans now regard you as being almost like Tendulkar or something like that. And, and instead of being shocked and sort of falsely modest and all the rest of it, he just said, well, that's very flattering, but, you know, I, and I just want to go and win matches. So he wasn't, I, I feel like if you said that to any other batsman in world cricket, they would, they would cower and, and cringe and say, no, 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 I am not worthy to polish the great man's shoes. And Coley sort of said, yeah, maybe fair enough. But I wonder whether he could bat the way he does without that mindset, mm. you know? He's so dominant um, and... Like you said, he just has this tendency to turn it on. It was almost like the Tri-Series wasn't a big enough event for his talents, you know. It's almost like, say, an NBA player coming coming into his own in the final scenario where, you know, the, the world's gaze is on Coley at these big moments and he just seems to deliver. He did, You know, at times in some of these hundreds, he doesn't exactly play out of his skin, but he just does it, you know. And like you said... He's done it 22 times now. 22 times and, and this one, you know, in, in the World Cup finals against Pakistan, it doesn't get much bigger than that. Um, did, did that did, does the win really mean much, Dalip, in, in overall terms in, or in terms of India's form? You know, they haven't been winning on tour thus far in Australia. No, I think it's, it's a huge lift for a team that uh, had almost forgotten how to win uh, the two and a half months it's been. In Australia, they they had a couple of moments in the tri series as well uh, for about forty overs against Australia, half a match against England. But uh, you never had a situation where the batsmen were backing up the bowlers or vice versa. Yesterday, they they tended to do most things right, uh, except for perhaps the last uh, five overs with the bat. When uh, Pakistan, let's admit, bowled superbly. I haven't seen death bowling like that for quite a while. It was magnificent, wasn't it? You, you, India looked on track to rack up about 330 or, or possibly even higher. Yeah. They, were, they were well set. They were only a couple of wickets down and, um, and Pakistan ended up running through them, really. Um, you know, got them, reduced them to, uh, to seven wickets down and, and just kept taking wickets in those last few overs. And only, I think, 27 runs from the final five overs yeah. of the Indian innings, which was probably, you know, the only point you know, the only thing you could point to out of their display yesterday that was a little bit lacking was that finishing at the end. But then uh, do you blame the Indian batsmen or, or look at the bowling? Because I, I just don't think too many international batsmen are used to uh, facing that kind of speed anymore. I mean, Wahab Riaz was consistently over 147 
uh, kilometers per hour. Sohail Khan was no slouch, and, and they were hitting good lengths and forcing batsmen on the back foot. Uh, was very impressive. Yeah, I mean, it really looked like perhaps India uh, might have let one slip, but then Pakistan in the chase, as we've seen so so many times before. Poor old Misfail Haq is is just a lone hand in that side so often. He's so he made seventy six. Ahmed Shahzad made forty seven, but was bogged down and, and went very slowly. Strike rate of sixty four, um, and then there really wasn't much from anybody else in the top order. Thirty six from Haris Soal, but aside from that, it was Misfail on his own. It's just. Uh... Uh, a friend of mine wrote, um, I, I think, uh, in, in his column that he wrote that um, they're still playing the cricket from 1992, and that's so true because you you look at the way other teams manage in innings now. Uh, between Shazad and uh, Harris Sohail, just two batsmen at the top of the order, 77 dot balls in 20 overs. Now, mm. how do you win a one-day match with mm. that kind of batting? Because you're putting so much pressure on yourself to hit boundaries, which... At a venue like the MCG, which is not a small postage stamp Asian ground, for example, you can't keep hitting boundaries or sixes at will. So, And one of the big problems was, obviously, as you say, with Shazad and Sahail was you've got Shazad 47 off 73, Sahail 36 from 48. One of those guys needed to go on after, after getting mm. their eye in like that, but they both you know, sort of threw it away. Shazad's shot was very loose. And I get the sense that for Pakistan to make big totals in this tournament, he needs to hang around and be the anchor. And as you say, if they are going to bat in that outdated way, they need to build the innings around him, not have, you know, someone else going slow along alongside him. Yeah. And it's a little hard to know out of that whether India bowled particularly well or... You know, whether some of it was down to just bad batting from Pakistan. And the Indian bowlers have certainly struggled on this tour, but they were, um, Muhammad Shami was very good yesterday and it was a much better performance. And they looked a better side with Mohit Sharma too yesterday. Yeah, I think Mohit gives them the kind of control that's been missing in a, in a lot of their outings earlier in the tour. Uh, but I think the key thing, again, was rotation of strike. When a spinner comes on, for example, if you milk him for three or four singles, uh, in his first over, it makes him think when he bowls two maidens in his first three overs, A, his confidence goes sky high. Uh, and you, you're putting yourself under massive pressure when you already have 300 to chase. And particularly when he bowls a couple of maidens and then gets a wicket caught at slip. I mean, perfect off-spinner, you know, yeah. left-hander caught at slip. That's, it just makes an off-spinner like Ravi Ashwin feel like he's, he's an absolute, he's a real bowler in this match. He's not mm. just a, a bowling machine sending down stuff for them to score off. And he's, you know, he's, he's had a, a bit of an indifference summer. He's, he's tried hard, but, you know, probably more use with the bat than the ball in the, in the test series, really, in the end. Um, do you think Ravi Ashwin can, can, has he learned how to bowl on Australian wickets now, or was it more the opposition he was bowling to? I think it's a bit of both, but of the Indian bowlers, Ashwin is probably by far the, uh, the most intuitive in terms of figure, figuring out uh, conditions and adjusting his game accordingly. And I think he's had enough time now to uh, work it out. It probably helps that the tour manager, Ashur Dayub, is also a former off-spinner who played a fair bit for India. Uh, Ravi Shastri was a, a spin bowler who played a lot of cricket in Australia. So I'm sure those two have had some inputs as well on how to approach uh, one-day bowling in Australian conditions. 
And when it comes to Pakistan, I mean, I'm, I'm excited by leg spinners generally, but you know, Yasir Shah was absolutely phenomenal in in the Test series against Australia last October. Um, but can he can he bowl in the one day format, Russell? Do you think he can he? I mean, I, I feel like a leg spinner generally has a better chance in Australia than an off spinner of having an impact, yeah. given given the level of bounce in the wickets. And I think so, and I think he'll have far better days as far as um, batsmen not being able to handle him. Than, than he did yesterday. Um, it was a tough start for him against Indian batsmen who played him so well. And I think he's he's going to have a few matches in this tournament where he t- he does take bags because um, there are certainly nations who aren't as proficient players of spin as that Indian lineup. So mm. his, we joked about it before that Warren said spin would, would play a big part based on his none for 60 from nine overs, but I think <laughs> he will have better days than that. And I, I think I've also heard down the wires that the the MCG match India South Africa has sold out, I believe, which is enormous, huge if true, as they say on the internet. <laughs> um, it may or may not be wrong. I, I just it just sort of came in over the airwaves this morning, a, a snippet I heard. But if we're speaking of streaks now, uh, with India, it's six nil against Pakistan. Against South Africa, they've lost all three. They've never beaten South Africa in a World Cup match. Mm. That should be interesting. And it's funny what you say about Pakistan batting as though it's the 1992 World Cup. Maybe they and England can play off again because they both seem to play in that fashion, you yeah. know? Well, I mean, it worked in 1992. Yeah, why, sure. why change the formula? Um, but, you know, if the formula is most of your top order falling over and, and sort of blocking and trudging away, I mean, I, I I think there are two things at play there. One, facing that many dot balls is is ridiculous in the first place, but then letting it, panic you is is no more helpful you know you're you're, yes. you're you're killing your team twice if if you're batting out maidens you're hurting your team but if you're then freaking out because of it and slogging and getting yourself out caught at mid-on you're doing them damage again yeah i think that was one of the best things about the way uh Kohli batted yesterday russell mentioned earlier that he he doesn't always dominate when he makes those hundreds and that was quite clear yesterday because the first partnership with uh Devin worth 129 uh, Davin was very much the more fluent batsman out there and Kohli sensibly gave him as much of a strike as he could. And when Suresh Raina came in, it was the same story. I think Suresh had uh, just 18 dot balls in that 74 and, and he worked the ball around beautifully. And uh, Kohli doesn't have an ego when it comes to such things. He doesn't need to be the man out there every day, all day. So uh, I, I thought the way they batted in combination was excellent yesterday. Mm. And not only uh, not having an ego, having a sense of when he should play that innings. And it was something that was apparent too in the South Africa game, that that is how you recover from the early loss of wickets. And it was the same for Australia and South Africa, 70 for three, 80 for four from 20 overs. Um, In both those instances, Bailey played a calm knock while Finch went nuts. Uh, For South Africa, Dumini played a calm knock while Miller got himself in and eventually launched at the end. And that is what Pakistan lacked that that India had, was that player, as Mm. Kohli did, who just said, I'm going to be here till the end and I'm going to make 100. And that if they had that player, particularly with such a good striker like Misbah, if he had that sort of support, you wonder at what he might be able to do. I, I feel like he's he's such an unlucky, undermined, under-supported cricketer in a tough well, job. There were glimpses of that yesterday, weren't there? I mean, there were three successive boundaries, I think, of Ashwin towards the end where he was just picking the gaps at will. But the batting at the other end, I mean, Afridi's sort of played the same match now for... 18, 19 years. I mean, you, you put him under the slightest bit of pressure and he 
just donks one into the deep and walks off. I mean, it's it's really not good enough. It's not what you want from your senior most player. Mm. And to, uh, was he he was batting number six last night, wasn't he? He was. He was. He, yeah, I mean, to, it seems to have him in as a top six batsman just seems absurd. You know, maybe maybe an eight, maybe a kind of Faulkner role where he can come in and slog a few and make twenty off five balls, fine, but. Uh, I can't understand why they wouldn't have batsmen. But you've actually seen Faulkner play situations. I've seen Faulkner play, play the situation in, in various matches in India, mm. in Australia as well. Uh, Afridi doesn't seem to have adjusted his game at all. And uh, I guess part of it is also uh, a section of the fans glorifying that boom-boom approach. Sure. I wonder how much of that has to do with it too. Yeah, just just on the Coley hundreds, I, I did some maths last night and figured that if he plays for another 10 years at his current rate of games per year and centuries per innings, he'll make something like 72 one-day hundreds. Um, am I being unrealistic in hoping that this happens? Or, you know, do you, what, what, what's your... I think to? he's got at least 50 at him, for sure. Yeah, I think that uh, that Tendulkar record looked as uh, safe as Fort Knox about four years ago because you had... Ponting on the verge of retirement, Jaisuri already retired, and nobody else, I think, had even crossed 20. Mm. Suddenly you've got... Gang- Ganguly uh, had 22. He's the next oh, yes, best. Yes, Ganguly he's, had 22. He's the next Sorry. best down. Uh, but you've now got, uh, now got Hashimam and uh, Kohli mm. scoring hundreds, what, every sixth or seventh innings? And yep. every yeah. yeah, basically every sixth innings at the moment. But Amla's probably only got about five years left, so he's on, on the all-time tallies, he's probably not going to get there, but... Uh, Cole is my horse. And this this highlights something probably too that we should mention out of the first four games, which was that all four of those games were won by the side batting first, mm-hmm. making 300. And those those scores, there's already been more 300 plus scores mm-hmm. in this tournament than there was in the entire 1992 World Cup. Um, and that was, yeah, it was so evident that runs on the board I mean, we essentially had four lopsided games. They weren't yep. unattractive games but, to watch. But, but on the evidence that batting has changed and that scoring 300 is now more par than it is exception. Yes, especially in Australia. Let's quickly look ahead to a few of the games to come. Russell, we've got New Zealand playing Scotland on Tuesday and then we've got New Zealand playing England on Friday and they've already played Sri Lanka last Saturday. So they've got three games in a week and Australia's got one game in a week. What's, is, is this, this seems a bit unreasonable. Well, seems completely fair to me. Sure. <laughs> um, I, I don't predict any problems for New Zealand with either Scotland or England, do you? You wouldn't think so. Um, I think Scotland are going to provide a few scares for people. I think they have some powerful all-rounders. Um, they're probably more likely than Ireland, I think, to cause to cause problems mm-hmm. um, for the Test Nations. But I still think New Zealand at home for this whole tournament, you know, you'd almost put your house on New Zealand whenever they're playing at home. Yep. Dalip, Afghanistan v Bangladesh on Wednesday. I think this could actually be a really interesting match. It's my next game. I can't wait, actually. I, I spoke to a couple of the Afghan players uh, before the tournament started, and they said they were looking at three games as uh, games that they legitimately thought they could win. Uh, one was Bangladesh, the other was Scotland, fellow associate team, and the third was England. So they they really right. think they have a chance in yeah. those three games. And, and trust me, they will not go down wondering Afghanistan. They're not that type of team. So they will go out there, give it the kitchen sink and mm. then some. And it'll be interesting because Bangladesh, if you put them in a position where 
Uh, they're under pressure, like we spoke about with the Pakistan batting. They can fold. We've seen that happen in the past. Particularly chasing. Exactly. So, And uh, Afghanistan have got a couple of really handy big unit fast bowlers. Big fast bowlers, yeah. Which, And traditionally speaking, the smaller nations that have won at the World Cup have tended to do so in low-scoring matches. And that could be the case with these bowlers that Afghanistan have got, that you know they could tear through Bangladesh. You could see that happening. Yeah, it might also have a contest on Thursday in the United Arab Emirates versus Zimbabwe. UAE played a really entertaining uh, warm-up game with Afghanistan, where Afghanistan made 300-plus and the UAE made 293, I think, in reply. Um, can they give Zimbabwe a run? I'm not sure. I think Zimbabwe are going to be one of the dangerous floaters in this competition. I, I, what little I saw of them yesterday was, was fairly impressive. I mean, the first half of the innings uh, with the ball against South Africa and then uh, probably till about 30 overs in the run chase. They were well on top of things. They'd taken Stain apart in his first spell. I think there were a lot of positives for them to take from that game yesterday. And uh, Dav Watmore's excellent at... Uh, managing the, the so-called smallest sides in the World Cup. And I, I do expect them to knock over one of the established teams. And what, what more was furious when, after having South Africa 80 for four, that things fell apart in the way they did? He'd, he'd been sitting there very calmly with a broad smile as that all unfolded. And then within 10 overs, he was pacing around and he looked very frustrated and I think that's a good sign that they, I think Zimbabwe believe that they can beat, you know, I think they went there yesterday thinking we can beat South Africa. And I agree they will cause, they will cause problems. Mm. I mean, they've got explosive batsmen. The the, the bowling isn't, it's not toothless. I think they can contain as they did against South Africa. So yeah, I would agree with that that judgment on Zimbabwe. Pakistan v West Indies on Saturday could be, that's uh, you know, how many times can you say the word wild card in one match preview? Mm. Um, I, I, it's completely unpredictable, really, isn't it? It's looking more and more like a, a, a must win win for um, sorry must win game for both sides because you you look at the way the draw is structured and I don't think anyone really wants to run into Australia and New Zealand in the quarterfinals, uh, mm. especially on their home turf. Uh, and and so you really want to try and finish in the top two in your group. And if either of those teams loses that game, it's very hard to see how they can do that. And we've got Australia v Bangladesh on Saturday. You would imagine would be a, a formality. The main interest there is which Australian players play and and how that you know if they kind of get some of their second stringers in to just to give them a, a run and and sort of you know try to get everybody thinking cricket for the tournament. Afghanistan v Sri Lanka on the Sunday. Well, Sri Lanka really need to win that to try to get their tournament going. Russell. Yeah, they do. Um, and I think just going back to the West Indies. Um, of the test-playing nations, I think they're the biggest risk of an early exit. Um, they've been very poor in the lead-up. They're led by 23-year-old Jason Holder, the youngest guy in the squad, who's just kind of been, you know, handed this basket case yep. and, you know, been told, do your best with this, which is an unfortunate situation for him. And they just look very, very lacklustre, I think. West Indies fans will be reaching for the... Fire in Babylon DVD pretty quickly. Mm. And then we've got Sunday, the the big one, India v South Africa at the MCG. Um, you've already suggested that history is against them, Dalif, against India. Yeah, I think South Africa, uh, one of the teams that India will 
traditionally struggle against. There's a reason for that. They they bowl so well as a unit uh, typically, and there's such a brilliant fielding side. It gives uh, the Indian batsmen very little leave, leeway compared to when they're playing a side like Pakistan. And uh, right now, South Africa have got, in my opinion anyway, uh, probably the second strongest batting lineup in this tournament, and they bat so incredibly deep. Uh, I can see them chasing down pretty much anything up to about 320 in these conditions. So it puts real pressure on India to either make a really big score or mm. with the bowling that they've got, they face the pros- prospect of chasing down a really big one. And then the last match before our next podcast next week will be England v Scotland on the Monday, the referendum fight. Mm. Will it be yes or will it be no? Uh, will there be grudges outstanding? Can your Scots provide a muscular upset, Russell Jackson? I think they're capable of it, whether they do it, whether they pull it all together is another question. Um, geez, England would be would be down if they lose that game. I think oh. that's, that's you know, a summer that's gone badly could could tip into farce if that's if that goes against them. Uh, we mentioned the uh, the earlier England game against New Zealand. I actually fancy England to do better in that one because their right. record against the lesser teams, uh, even last time, was atrocious. They lost to Bangladesh. They lost to Ireland, uh, Kevin O'Brien in particular. Mm. Uh, I really don't think they fancy these kind of games. They they probably go in thinking, oh, banana skin must be careful. Right. Uh, whereas uh, in the last tournament, they beat South Africa in a very low-scoring game in Chennai. And I think they, they lift themselves to those kind of games. I can easily see them uh, perhaps beating New Zealand and slipping up against Scotland. Well, it's going to be an exciting week ahead and we'll be back with you next week to go over all of those results, see how right and wrong we were. Um, throwing these predictions out there wildly. Uh, that'll be next week on the Guardian World Cup podcast, which will be coming to you weekly throughout the rest of the tournament. Jeff Lemon here with you, and thanks to our guests for the day, Russell Jackson, Dilip Premachandran, and Ellison Mitchell. Until next time. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.